I'm beginning to think about my show in terms of themes, yeah. in terms of essentials, essential things that you got to take away yeah. and things we can do. And so to the extent we can kind of mm -hmm. develop lines of action as opposed to... Well, I, I think a key theme would be we need to be thinking the unthinkable more. And I think a key theme is, you know, another cliche would be to expect the unexpected. And One and of my big concerns is we don't have everybody in the national security establishment fighting for our team. No. So that's what I call the enemy within. We also have an entire political class, both parties, yeah. that are not fighting for our interests. They are fighting for their own interests. Yeah. Even Ed Royce yeah. went, the first thing he did after leaving the Hill, Is that, yeah. he went and lobbied for a Chinese conglomerate. Yeah, it's crazy. Now, this was a guy who was very low-key and kept his nose clean, didn't have any major scandals for the years he was in office. And the first thing he did was he went and started lobbying for these, you know... Well, that's what Peter Schweikert calls mm. elite capture. Mm -hmm. Pete, Peter's a good guy. I'm a big fan of his. Yeah, yeah isn't he we fantastic? correspond occasionally. Yeah. yeah, he's great. Yeah. Well, Kenny, are we ready to roll? The Bill Walton Show for June 9. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics, and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to the Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Almost from the moment President Joe Biden's administration took office, the world has grown a more dangerous place, and the pace is accelerating. There's a long list of national security worries, the worries that didn't used to be of concern to everyday Americans, but now are, or at least should be. Russia, Ukraine, and now the prospects of nuclear war. China's mounting threat to envelop Taiwan, a world leader in semiconductors and information technology. Collapsing political stability in the Middle East with Iran's nuclear breakout and terrorism in Syria, Iraq, and of course, Israel. Then there's the mostly underreported Chinese and Russian quest to dominate space. And maybe, worst of all, is the Made in America war on fossil fuels, which has driven inflation sky high and made us all dependent on our enemies for our energy. Triggered by our disastrous cut and run from Afghanistan last year, the world's bad actors have been emboldened by America's weakness. Like Thelma and Louise, Joe Biden seems determined to drive us off a cliff. Well, to uh, figure out what we can do about this is, is my returning guest and brilliant uh, Brandon Weikert, publisher of the Weikert Report and author of Winning Space and the soon-to-be-published The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. Brandon, who's been called a brilliant and anxiety-producing scholar, has emerged as one of our most well-informed original defense intellectuals since the great Herman Kahn. He tells us what we do not want to hear, but need to know about the gathering threats to our freedom and prosperity. Thank you. Brandon? <laughs> well, let's start, with, uh, let's start with following up on where we were two months ago. We talked yeah. about um, Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And Let's fast forward to today. What's happened in the last two months, and where are we now, and what do you think is going to happen next? Well, uh, the war in Ukraine has shifted. The, the focus was originally Russia had this really kind of gonzo idea of, hey, let's try to take Kiev, the capital. 
Um, and uh, it was a bridge too far. I mean, the, the, most military analysts were completely shocked. I wasn't. But most, most military analysts were completely shocked because it was so nonsensical for Putin to, to try to push that far that quickly into uh, Ukraine, and it failed. Um, the problem was that the war should have really ended after the successful defense of Kyiv. Like, there should have been pressure put on from the United States and its allies on both parties to say, hey, look, time to reset, go back to the way things were pre-February 24th, the day the invasion began. But instead, the war shifted over to eastern and southern Ukraine. Now, southern Ukraine, um, the Russians are desperately trying to cut off uh, Ukraine's access to the Black Sea, which is vital for their economy. They need to have some port access. Um, that is uh, up in the air, whether the Russians will be able to achieve their dominance there. Um, but oddly enough, the fighting has also shifted to the one part of the country where the Russians have clear, decisive geological, excuse me, geographical and uh, population advantages, which is the eastern part. Um, the, Wasn't that his original aim? I mean, well, it, yeah, uh, I, I think what he did is he pushed to see how far he could get. And then when yeah. he got slapped away, he's sort of saying, well, at least let me. Was he, do you think he was he's surprised that that didn't? Yeah, I think he overestimated his capability and underestimated the Ukrainian capability. Does he have his people behind him? Uh, now he does. Uh, the the Russians are are because uh, the ruble, is, everything's bouncing back for him. Yeah, I mean they're doing uh, they're, they're doing, doing okay. Pretty so well. look, the Russians have spent the last twelve years making themselves more self sufficient. Their agricultural sector, uh, their their energy sector, these things are. Well, you can sanction these things. <clears> they have become such a robust producer of these you know essential commodities that they know they're going to have willing buyers on the market beyond the West. And when you remove particularly their energy sources from the market, that just spikes volatility, which, of course, as you know, spikes the price for everybody, mm -hmm. um, supply and demand. Um, but the, the the Russians, I think, really thought they could take Kiev quickly. And when it didn't work out, the fighting shifted to the East. The problem is the Ukrainians are now overestimating their capability and they think they can push the Russians out of eastern Ukraine, and they are going to give it the old college try. And that is a big problem because that is the one area that Putin will not, he'll not let go. He, and I think that he will risk a wider war with the West over keeping a foothold in eastern Ukraine. What, what should be done now is uh, the, the West, the United States in particular, needs to use whatever leverage it has to force these two parties to come to a more accommodating stance, meet at a big, beautiful table, as the former president would say, and, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, talk it big, over. Beautiful table. Yeah, yeah, yeah talk yeah. it over. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Um, you know, the Ukrainians can't they're not going to be able to push the Russians out and the Russians are not going to be able to push into to central and western Ukraine. Well, well, so well that's why I'm so dismayed by the <clears throat> Biden administration. It seems to me if we had some grown-ups they would say, look, this thing, let's wrap this thing up because it's turning out the sanctions are hurting us more than they're hurting Russia. Right. And you think food prices are high this year, wait till the cost of fertilizer well, yeah. and the scarcity of all that hits. Yeah. It's going to be far worse. Well, the fertilizer issue is already bad and getting worse. And that's partly because there was a drought in Latin America. And so that 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 has been uh, in negatively impacting agricultural prices across the board um, it, the whole since last six months ago. Mm -hmm. And so now you have you add in this Russian issue and now you have a real problem where, uh, you know, not just fertilizer, but in general, the cost of agricultural goods is going to spike for everybody. 
um, and those supply chain issues are going to be exacerbated. It's going to be made worse um, by all of these different things happening at the same time. And so. Well, who in the administration should we look to to help us bring the parties to the big, beautiful table? Um, well. Because we've got Biden out there saying, you know, we're going to go all the way to defend. Yeah. I mean, you know, plucky Ukrainians and all that. Right. It, 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 there's some point at which you've got to say, let's wrap this thing up. So the problem is, is that Biden's not in charge. I've said this to you before. Yeah. Biden has a say in so much as he's, yes, the president, but he's got a cadre of people with competing interests and objectives all with their hand on the wheel which is canceling out whatever positive momentum they might be able to gain. You have people like Ron Klain, who's apparently the outgoing chief of staff now. Ron Klain is one of the most fanatical uh, ideologues in the administration, and he's the gatekeeper for President Biden. And Ron Klain uh, is surrounding Biden with, with hawks on Russia. Uh, you have a lot of the defense people, uh, Jake Sullivan, uh, the current uh, secretary of defense, uh, the whole defense team basically wants to press Russia harder than even what they're doing now. Um, the problem is, what's the end game? You know, how do we how do we end this thing? And nobody's thought this through because I, I, I was speaking to somebody who works in the Department of State recently and I brought up, I said, look, the nuclear genie could be let out of the bottle. And they start laughing at me. Oh, come on. You're being you know, don't don't mm -hmm. don't be so weak. This is come on. And I said, you know, um, People don't realize that the Russians view this as an existential issue, and they may not be able to convert any gains with conventional military, but that just means that they're going to have to rely more on their unconventional capabilities or their nuclear weapons capabilities. And if you remove whatever conventional capabilities, traditional military capabilities they think that they have, if you remove that from the table... They're not going to surrender, so they're going to do the only thing they can do, and that's escalate in other areas, notably nuclear. And people need to remember the Cuban Missile Crisis, just how close we were. Uh, you know, the, the, the same kind of people advising Biden are the same kind of people who were telling Kennedy, just push, push Khrushchev and the Soviets all the way because they're not going to do the unthinkable. Well, and then Kennedy, you listen to the Kennedy tapes of that crisis because he recorded the whole, all the conversations he had with LeMay, for instance. And he says, well, General, um, they're going to do something. And he said, no, because the only thing that they can do, they can't do, which is nuclear war. And Kennedy was like, well, that's not a solution because, of course, they're going to they're gonna use whatever they can. And it's the same thing here today in Ukraine. If you push them too far... Um, they're going to risk something wider because they're not going to, they, they cannot be made to look bad, particularly Putin. Well, there's a perception that somehow we still maintain our nuclear nuclear superiority, mm. but we don't. No, we don't. And China and Russia have been working apace to modernize their nuclear, cap nuclear capability, mm -hmm. and we haven't. Yeah, and, and the nuclear triad, the B-52s, oh, yeah. the submarines, the ICBMs, those are those are all gathering dust. They're gathering dust, and furthermore, um, the Russians, beginning in 2010, thanks to the Obama administration's New START treaty, allowed for Russia to begin a full-throated modernization and expansion, particularly of their tactical nuclear weapons. These are the lower-yield nukes that would prob probably be used uh, in a war over Ukraine. 
we didn't do that. We didn't we didn't meet them in the same way. We didn't start modernizing our forces again. China, we actually don't so officially the DOD and the intelligence services say we know exactly how many nukes they have in China. They have about three hundred and fifty to four hundred. That is that is the tip of the iceberg. And remember if you remember last summer, uh, it was civilian satellite imagery that caught all of these new missile silos being built in the Gobi Desert. There's also this thing called the Underground Great Wall, which, of course, is poo-pooed by the people at Georgetown. But I got to tell you, I am convinced that this is something significant. This is basically going back to Mao. China built these very complex, you know, series of tunnels that that interconnect the whole countryside with the uh, the sea, the coastal area. Um, and for, since 2009, there have been a group of nuclear warfare experts who've been saying we think. The Chinese have been stockpiling nuclear weapons in these underground bunkers, and we can't see them. We don't have any ability to determine, mm -hmm. and they use these advanced rail systems underground to move nuclear weapons around so we can't track them. Those mobile nuclear underground weapons constitute the great underground wall, and we have no idea how many nukes they actually have. And so this idea that we have supremacy in the nuclear warfare domain, it's not true. We don't. We don't. Well, tacu tactical nukes are just slightly less lethal than the bombs we dropped on Hiroshima. Yeah. So it's not like... No, I mean, <laughs> these things are designed... I'll tell you how the Russians look at it. And this goes back to V.D. Sokolovsky, who was in 1962. He was the basically their equivalent of a Joint Chief of Staff. Um, and he came up with a doctrine that Putin has reconstituted, which basically says tactical nuclear weapons are just big pieces of artillery. And uh, we will use them to punch holes through the NATO defense perimeter when the war begins, as we would use our largest artillery piece or our largest strategic non-nuclear bombs. That's how they view it. And now this, this view eroded a little bit after Chernobyl with Gorbachev, but Putin has reconstituted it. And this view of a, of a, of a forward-leaning, offensive-minded nuclear warfare doctrine is something that our intelligence services, in my opinion, has not fully rectified and has not come up with a counter-strategy. This is why in my book, I call for a complete, full-throated, if you want to say crash program for uh, space-based nuclear... This is your book on space, yeah. yeah. Space-based nuclear defense uh, system. This is The Bill Walton Show, and I'm here talking with Brandon Weikert, publisher of The Weikert Report and, and author of a couple of brilliant books. And we're thinking and talking about the unthinkable, mm -hmm. uh, which is nuclear war. And as I said in my intro, that was not in the cards three years ago, two years ago. Now, all of a sudden, with uh, a lot of uh, inept handling of it, national security issues, it's back. Yeah. Yeah. So... I, I don't. This is. I don't want to do politics, but it just does seem like that. Uh, <laughs> that Joe Biden is is just provocatively weak, and really has emboldened the world's bad guys to say now's the time to strike. I think it's important to note that for four years, Mr. Trump, who is supposedly a Russian spy, <laughs> for four years yeah. we didn't have much to worry about from Mr. Putin in Ukraine. It was April of 2021 when the path to war was really decided upon in Moscow to invade Ukraine. And that was when uh, President Biden did two paradoxical things. President Biden started ramping up his anti-Russian rhetoric and ramping up supplies to Ukraine's forces and really getting provocative with Russia. At the same time, he 
decided to meet with Putin and last summer signed an agreement that allowed for Russia to start doing their Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which basically was the, you know, the fuel for Russia's war machine in terms of the financing. Uh, this was a major pipeline connecting Russian natural gas to Germany and the rest of Europe. And for four years, the Trump administration sanctioned that. And almost immediately, Mr. Biden removed those sanctions. And there is a straight line, if you're being honest, there is a straight line from that decision and the decision by Mr. Putin to invade. And that was also because I think Mr. Putin thought, I know Biden. Uh, I know that he, I've, I've dealt with him for many years as vice president and then senator before that as a foreign relations committee. I think Mr. Putin looked at Mr. Biden and said, this man is weak. This man is, is I, I think, I believe that the Russians believe Mr. Biden is senile. And I think that they're, they look at him very much how we looked at, if you remember, the, the, for a hot moment, the Soviets had um, Konstantin Chernenko. Oh, sure. Who was in the 80s. Uh, after Andropov passed, it was Chernenko. <laughs> Chernenko was the sclerotic, aging, old party apparatchik who was this kind of angry guy. He didn't really have any vision for the Soviets. He sort of presided over the the ultimate decline that then Gorbachev sort of finalized with Glasnost and Perestroika. I think that Putin looks at Biden as Reagan used to look at Chernenko, yeah. and he can be pushed around and sclerotic and senile. You know, some some of my friends that are don't know a lot, keep saying to me, well, you know, there's some chance that Putin has cancer and yeah. he's dying, and that's going to be our salvation. It's not. It's not. So um, uh, in 2018, I wrote a piece. I couldn't get it published anywhere except uh, this very widely read magazine or online uh, called uh, American Thinker. They published it. Um, good, good magazine. Yeah, and uh, this this that's actually a great place it, to be published. It is a wonderful place. Yeah, and yeah. Mark Galati, who's supposedly this great Russia expert, yeah, uh, took me to task uh, about how I was an idiot, and because the art the article was all about once Putin goes, what comes after, and the this was in 2018. So at the time, I was saying, look, Putin's old, and he's outlived the average age for a male in Russia is like 55, 57, and he's then going into his 70s. So he's already outlived his his peers. Obviously, he has a lot of money and power, so that's that makes sense. But at some point, whether it's you know a bullet to the back of the brain by a rival or it's just natural causes, Putin's going to go. What comes after him? There's not a deep bench in Russia of new up-and-coming leaders. That's Is it as bad as the Democrat Party? <laughs> well, it's very similar. It's very similar. They don't really? have a, they don't have a deep bench. Yeah. And so they have some people who could believably take over, um, but could they keep the whole thing together? That's the big question. I don't think they could. And so my fear scenario in this article that I wrote uh, was that once Putin goes, you could have a situation where the Russian Federation itself collapses. Interestingly, the Foreign Affairs, which is the Council of Foreign Relations magazine, um, this last week published a deep dive essay calling for, it was called Russia's Defederation, saying that, uh, in, that very soon in our lifetimes, Russia is going to destabilize even more and break up into its component parts on the end of an empire, truly. Now, that sounds great to anybody, as I'm concerned about Russian aggression. I don't like it, and I don't support Putin in any way, and I don't think what he's doing in Ukraine is right. But I'm concerned with all those nukes and bio and chem weapons. What comes after Putin if, if it is a breakdown of the Russian central power, 
we could be witnessing uh, like a warlord era arise in Russia in which you have loose nukes and loose WMD and, and terrorism. And so let's imagine we're, we're in the White House and we're trying to get this thing wrapped up mm. and diffused. What do we do? Well, the first thing you do, you have a lot of leverage with Ukraine. Ukraine would the, the military of Ukraine would not be able to be doing what it has done without our support. The so, thing I agree. So I did let me interrupt, but right. but but to set the stage, Ukraine's been a real basket case. It's been yeah, the, it's the most unsuccessful Soviet satellite state since the whole thing. Blew uh, up. One of them. I don't know if it's the most, but it's it's. I think Belarus probably is. Okay, I'm yeah. in, I'm, in, I'm, yeah. entitled, I'm entitled to hyperbole. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Almost. But certainly, <laughs> it is the most corrupt, according to Foreign Policy Magazine, 2019. Okay, corrupt. The most corrupt European country. Okay. Was Ukraine. Again, I support Ukraine's right to sovereignty. That's, that's, they, they, they should not be getting trampled on this way. But they are a basket case. They, are, they were, until recently, a quasi-failed state. Um, the current government is trying to clean it up, but it's an uphill battle. And, um, you know, if, if, if it were me leading Ukraine, I would say, we defended our country from an invasion. Let's close this thing up now. Let's, let's make a deal. Sell the movie rights. He's right. an actor. Right. <laughs> he gets right. to play himself. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but there are forces inimical to that, notably his foreign minister, Zelensky's foreign minister, Kuleba, who's really um, a hawk on Russia. And I, again, I get it. Look, I, I get where he's coming from, but you have to be realistic now. And so the issue is you go to push Ukraine or uh, Russia out of eastern Ukraine. They're not going to go quietly, even if they can't beat you conventionally. They're going to escalate somewhere else, and it's going to be against us probably because we've been giving the weapons. And at that point, Putin doesn't care. And so if it were me in the White House, I would I would use our leverage with Zelensky. And by the way, Zelensky, I think, wants to do a deal, but he can't quite make it happen because of political issues at home. But if it were me, if I were in the White House, I would say, you know, Zelensky, we, you would not be defending yourselves the way you are without my help. So I'm telling you, I'm tethering our aid to your willingness and ability to sit at a big, beautiful table with the counterparty, Mr. Putin. And on the other end, I call Russia and I say, hey, look, your economy, yeah, it's rebounded a bit, but let's face it, you still want to do business with us. You still want to do deals with us. So we can talk about removing some of these sanctions in exchange for you sitting at the other end of that table, not trying to poison the, the counterparty, and you make a deal where we re reset the situation to what it was the day before you invaded, which is you get eastern Ukraine, you get the breakaway Russian-speaking provinces. Now, was that the day before they invaded? Did they have eastern Ukraine they basically de, facto? Did, de facto? De facto. They basically okay. did. They basically did. And so if that's what you want to make you end this thing, fine. We'll draw a line. We'll divide Ukraine like we did Germany in the Cold War, and that'll be the dividing line. And we'll try to figure out peacefully how we can get along. The forty billion has that mm -hmm. gone over? What's that? I believe for? it has. That, so that what, was the, what that, the what that go for? That was for now. Uh, we don't know. Supposedly, it was how much for, of it ended up in a Swiss bank? Supposedly, account? it was mostly non-military, but I don't believe that. Yeah. I, I, you know, and, and the way you have to understand the way they're moving money around through NATO. You know, it's it's not always direct, and it's done that way purposely so accountability is harder. Um, again, we should be supporting Ukraine in terms of defending the free area, but what's Western and Central and maybe parts of Southern. But this idea that they're going to take everything back, you know, people at the Hudson Institute, I love the Hudson Institute, but there's people at the Hudson Institute that are really banging the war drum. Yeah, you've got us, and I'm like, 
Yeah. That's that's not a healthy position to be taking, especially when we're dealing with Iran and we're dealing with uh, China's rise. We've got to start picking our battles a lot more wisely. Well, let's hope we get you in the White House. I don't think that's <laughs> going to happen anytime in the next two and a half years, maybe, maybe afterwards. But well, so let's segue. Uh, what's what's China's role been in the whole Russia Ukraine? Well, it's interesting. Um, China initially, China initially was encouraging this as a proof of concept. I think Xi Jinping in particular proof of concept for Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the fact that we did really bolster Ukraine. And the Ukrainians did a hell of a job, you know, resisting. I mean, they're they're courageous people. Um, The fact that they did resist as effectively as they did, and it has cost Russia. Yes, Russia is getting back okay economically, but it did cost them. Um, Russia's also self-sufficient, agricultural, with food stuff, with energy. China's not. And so the Chinese regime looked at Ukraine and said, Maybe maybe this is going to set us back a little bit. Um, maybe we should not be as vociferous in supporting so, Russia. Ex, ex, expand on that point. Yeah. I don't think I don't know all the details, but one of the things, for example, water. Mm-hmm. Russia Stop has what twenty percent uh, yeah. of the world's population mm-hmm. and only five percent of its water. Yeah, something like. And that. most of that water is highly polluted. <laughs> And mm-hmm. un- undrinkable, unusable, mm-hmm. and, and so they have a, a water problem mm-hmm. both for both for humans and for agriculture. Everybody's going to have a water problem very soon. Everybody will be. Okay, well, <laughs> let's put this. Okay. I want to come back to that okay. one. So, what's other, what are other China's weaknesses in so, terms so, of so, uh, chi- so whereas Russia is very self sufficient in ways very similar to us, maybe in some cases even better than us in terms of agricultural. Um, China is nothing without their ability to import goods. This is why China is so insistent on their island chain strategy. So you have the first island chain, second island chain, third island chain. China has been desperately trying to expand. A map for people off the coast of China. Mm -hmm. We've got the whole island chain starting up at uh, Japan. Japan and Taiwan. All the way down Mm -hmm. through Taiwan. Taiwan. And um, up down to the Philippines. um, Okay, so it's the the Pacific Islands off the coast of China. And then they go out farther until basically you get to Kiribati, which is right near uh, Hawaii. Now, there are military reasons for why they want to do that, to push us back militarily. But also, it's because they're very concerned about the offshore control capability of the U.S. Navy, which basically is our ability to blockade and choke off incoming sea-based trade, of which China is completely reliant on. And so this is why, this is the real strategic reason for why Beijing is so insistent on expanding out as well as into the Indian Ocean, because they want to create a shield, a buffer, that prevents the U.S. Navy and its allies from being able to effectively blockade goods coming into China. So when we sanctioned the hell out of Russia, they were able to, to withstand it. They've gotten hurt, but they were able to withstand it, I think, far better than China would be able to. Mm-hmm. And so Xi Jinping, especially now with COVID ravaging Shanghai, the economy in China is slowing down. Beijing has to rethink some of its strategic calculus. And so um, one of two things will happen, I think. Either this puts Xi in a go-for-broke mentality where if he doesn't pull the trigger like now on Taiwan, he doesn't, he maybe he can't later on, or this pushes China's leadership and says, we need to delay, 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 delay. 
because we need to make ourselves more self-sufficient like the Russians did. That way we can withstand any kind of blockade or sanction. Well, Xi's been doing some remark remarkably dumb things if you want Incredibly. to yeah. grow an economy. Yeah. He's taken, he, he, he can elaborate. I mean, I, I, zero, I got the, my list of details. The, the zero COVID policy could be his undoing as leader of China. Right. So that's basically where he is lo forcibly, lo I mean, you think our lockdowns are bad. He, he makes California look like Florida when it comes to when it comes to lockdowns. OK, so like, uh, you know, literally nailing people into their apartments and letting them die of starvation after weeks of being locked down. Shanghai is their most prosperous city. It was the equivalent of New York City. It was listed uh, by um, a major consulting firm that does a and I'm forgetting the name of. I'm drawing a blank now on the name. I listed in my book. Basically, they do a quadrennial review of the 10 most prosperous uh, technology hubs in the world. Shanghai in 2017 was number one over New York and Silicon Valley. Shanghai will not be number one anytime soon in anything because of these zero COVID policies. And that is having a very negative impact on China's overall economic growth. To say nothing of their declining population, to say nothing of other problems that they're facing as they transition from a uh, uh, production, old world kind of manufacturing economy into a high tech post-industrial society with, uh, you know, they, they're trying to get a high spending rate versus a high savings rate, uh, like most modern countries have, and that's going to drain and slow down their economy. Um, China now has to worry under Xi Jinping, can they sustain even three to 5% GDP growth? And if they can't, what does that translate to for the Chinese Communist Party's hold on power. And at that point, you could very well have, and you're already seeing this, rival factions within the upper echelons of the Chinese Communist Party forming to challenge Xi Jinping's absolute grip on power. And that could be um, very dangerous for Xi. However, one other thing, while that is bad for growing an economy, if you are a leader who is intent on a Maoist-style war, these zero COVID uh, policies, wartime controls, as the Communist Party calls them, wartime controls is a very interesting term that they use. This is the Walton Show. I'm here with Brandon Weikert, publisher of the Weikert Report. And we're talking about China and its zero uh, COVID strategy and the lockdowns and what's really behind it and uh, continue. Well, if, if your goal as Xi Jinping is to not just be an economic master of the universe, but to restore China's lost, supposedly lost greatness militarily. Um, putting your people into a psychological framework of war against the world, like he's doing right now, might serve his interest psychologically for prepping his people for the coming conflagration with the West, which could be apocalyptic. Well, the theories I've heard were, one, it's about COVID. I don't believe that. Maybe it is. But the other one was that as Shanghai is the most cosmopolitan city mm -hmm. in China, mm -hmm. also has lots of enemies of, yes. of President Xi and all yeah. sorts of forces are working against him, all sorts of connections to the outside mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. And so if you wanted to punish them and get the Chinese prepared for a, for a war mentality, mm -hmm. prepare for a nuclear war yeah. mentality, you would do what they're doing. Yeah. 
exactly. That yeah. Well, you're a Wall Street guy, so you know there's a difference between that culture in Wall Street and the culture in D.C. I mean, it's a political versus financial. At least it used to be. Now, nowadays we have more. You know, well, kind now of Wall Street. Right. It's hard but, to tell the difference. But let's now. say that for most of your career. <laughs> It was probably more of a cultural divide. Between... And that culture in the 80s was a lot of fun. Hey, I bet it, it was. Had nothing to do with DC. I bet it, I bet it was. But, but the point is, is that in China, it's very similar. You have the more business-oriented people uh, in Shanghai who want to make money, who want to get rich. You have the more political kind of communist leadership of Beijing, which, yeah, they want money to prop up the regime and to make sure that the country is sort of the beating heart of the global economy so you can't remove it. But at the end of the day, they want power. Power is their language, not money. Money is an extension of power, but they want power. So there is a cultural divide. Uh, one of the groups challenging Xi Jinping for power right now is called the Shanghai Gang. And this is led by the president from two presidencies ago in China, Jiang Zemin. And the Shanghai Gang tends to be more technocratic. They're all communists. Is but this the president? He's the former president. And is he, this the one who held the the conference call with 100,000 people talking about the uh, there was that that was a couple no of weeks. I think that was I think that was someone I think that was Lee Chang I might be Lee. wrong about it was that Lee. I think yeah, it, it was yeah. Lee. okay so Lee's another guy who's leading another that's the Hu Jintao's so you have Jiang Zemin which was the president two presidents ago he's leading the Shanghai faction against Xi and then you have Lee uh, Lee Chang who's the current deputy basically to Xi, right. who's part of the former president Hu Jintao's clique known as the youth faction or the youth league faction. And they're also challenging uh, a Xi. But the Shanghai cultural divide is critical here, critical to understand this sort of division right now that's driving politics in China and could very well be Xi Jinping's undoing. Now, recently, they supposedly let up on the lockdown. They did. They had to. They had to. It was destroying their country. They didn't have a choice. So how realistic is it that China would take a shot at en enveloping, is my word, I don't know what the word is, uh, Taiwan? I mean, Taiwan is used to be Formosa. Right. It's where the nationalist Chinese went when they lost to Mao. It's now created its own wonderful country, basically as its own language. Right. It's become a Right. You mentioned Shanghai as a technology mm -hmm. hub. I've got to believe that Taiwan oh, yeah. is, is neck and neck with that. Oh, yeah. It's a real country. And yeah. even though they're close geographically, you know, Henry V taking on France in yeah. you know, the 12th, you know, 14th yeah. century or something. I don't know which century it was. But what, what, it, seemed, it seems a bridge too far. I don't see any way they would actually pull that off. Um. So that is the opinion of most military analysts, which well, is that's why you hear, which is that well, I don't want to I don't want to hear that. <laughs> well, that, that is the opinion of most. And I push back on them all the time. OK, the same military analysts who are saying, you know, it's going to at least be not until 2027 that China would have the capability. Those are the same people who are making fun of me and attacking me online, saying your claim that. Putin's going to invade in February is insane. And then it happened. Then they were also yelling at me saying, your claim that he's going to hit Kiev before he tries to solidify eastern Ukraine is insane. That's exactly what he tried to do. Um, and so when you history tells us when you're dealing with fascistic dictators, which Putin and Xi are, they are fascists at heart. I know that Xi is technically a communist, but they, they resemble in China far more fascist. Or, or, or simply totalitarian. Totalitarian. When you're dealing with those kinds of dictators— Overreach is sort of in their their game. That that 
that is how they operate. They get very comfortable at home and they think their power is secure. So they start pushing, pushing, pushing outward. And sometimes they go too far. And so I think Xi Jinping has developed, he is developing amphibious capabilities to invade Taiwan. But what nobody talks about is the so-called, what is it, the Great Hall capability. And that is the ability to convert civilian transport ships into military amphibious assault vehicles. And they have a lot of those capabilities in this China. This is sort of a reverse Dunkirk. Uh... It's kind of a reverse Dunkirk. Yeah, yeah. You're right. Actually, it was very similar to the, the Nazi proposed invasion of, 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 of Britain, which they would have had to convert some of the, the civilian ships to go move the troops in. Now, a lot of military, I watched an interesting documentary about an alternative, what if they had invaded Britain? And what they found was that Britain's civil military defense was so good of the homeland, the Nazis would have been smashed at the beaches, at the cliffs of Dover. Um, if they tried this, because it was they didn't have the, the the capability yet, it could be that China pulls the trigger soon, and maybe they don't aren't as effective as they think they will be. My concern is, unlike Britain in World War II, Taiwan, while they are developing very stringent defensive capabilities, Taiwan's military, um, by and large, has a lot of corruption issues. Um, it, it, it is has a lot of my concern is it's a Potemkin force um, that it's it looks very strong and bristling on the outside. But once you push it a little bit, it might collapse. Um, and ultimately, I'll never forget. I was here in 2015 when I lived here. I went to an event up the road here uh, and there was a retiring Taiwanese military leader. He gave a very interesting speech. And afterward, I asked him, I said, uh, sir, uh, it sounds like your whole strategy, though, rests on the Yanks coming in to save the day. And he said, well, absolutely. You know, we, we could hold out for a little bit, but ultimately we would need the Americans. I said, well, what do you do when the Americans don't show up? He said, well, they have to show up. I said, why? And he said, because if you don't, then we lose. I said, well, yes, but politically, why do you think it would be viable for an American president to risk a world war with China to protect little Taiwan? He didn't have an answer. And he said, well, let's just hope. I said, That's, that seems to be the general consensus is let's just hope. But I don't rest my life on hope. I mean, that's important. But um, my concern is that, you know, Taiwan is, their whole strategy rests on us ultimately coming in over the horizon. What's the so-called quad about? So the quad is our attempt. It's, it's people say it's like NATO. It's, it's not really like NATO. It's, it's our attempt to <clears throat> build an alliance of, three of the biggest counterweights regionally to China's growing power. That's India, that's Japan, that's Australia, and then there's us. That's four powers, the Quad. Um, the problem is the Biden administration has done a bang-up job of alienating India, um, you know, for various reasons, part, namely because they do business with Russia. But you can't blame them for doing business with Russia. They've always done business with Russia, going back to the 1947, because of their history as a colonial entity. Well, for a long time, India was really a captive of the Soviet state. It wasn't Nehru uh, mm -hmm. basically yeah. a Soviet-style uh, yeah. leader? Yeah, and so they have a lot of connections with the, the <clears throat> Russian military. They, yeah. They're astronauts, the Gaganauts, Indian astronauts, train in Russia. They train on Russian equipment. They use Russian equipment. So this idea that Biden had where we were going to punish India, sanction them, and threaten them, 
uh, if they do continued business with with Russia. At the same time, we're begging them to to, to stick their necks out and join us in this anti-China alliance of the Quad, even though it's technically not an anti-China. It's an anti-China alliance. Um, is really silly to me. It's yet again a paradoxical, idiotic move by the current administration. No strategic thought. Very similar to how they goaded Russia at the same time they were trying to allow Russia to do the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which ultimately led to the invasion of Ukraine. Well, the Biden administration's afraid of China. They're afraid of everybody, it seems. They're afraid of FARC in Colombia. I mean, yeah. you know, they're... they're, they're they beat their chests at Russia because it's easy to do, because well, Russia's not integrated into the world economy the way China is. Yeah. And let's face it, the Russian elite have not spent as much money buying our elite that, as China has. So, no, A lot of places I want to take this, but <laughs> l l let's, go the, let's go the economic sure. uncoupling route. I mean, it looks like Xi is now trying to become somewhat more self-sufficient, trying to mm -hmm. shut down some of his, his, his industries that, that might depend more on the West. Yeah. But then we depend mightily on Russia, or I'm sorry, on China. China. Mm -hmm. And you know, Rosemary Gibson on, and mm -hmm. she's talked a couple times about our dependence on China and to a lesser extent India mm -hmm. for all of our pharmaceuticals. Yep. How do you uncouple that? How do we? It, it, it's going to take us decades uh, if we well, wanted to get to be self-sufficient in this. This was why the Trump administration's stated policy was the right one, which is we need to start onshoring. Yeah. And you know. We're we're now paying through the nose as as citizens. We're because of inflation, because of all the knock on effects from the shutdowns of COVID and the supply chain disruptions. Um, I wrote an article um, that got me a lot of flack from a lot of the Trump people. I wrote a I wrote an article uh, in American Greatness right when COVID hit, saying this is our opportunity to really reset the conversation and to fully embrace a decoupling agenda. You couldn't do it before COVID because there's a lot of interest. It's very hard. But we, we knew going into COVID shutdowns that we were going to end up paying the price, both literally and metaphorically, at some point, whether it was immediately or two years thereafter, because of the shutdowns disrupt, disrupting global supply chains. So why not use that as an excuse to reset the American economy and force those companies to come home <clears throat> or be left out in the cold? We didn't do that. And you still have this heavy dependence on China because it's just, it's easy. It's easy to keep those conduits open without realizing that in the near, in the longer term, um, they're going to have us, you know, by the cojones. They're, they're going to, you know, uh, you, you have your rival by, by the, the, the cojones and, and you, you, the hearts and minds will follow. And so until our political elite force the business elite to start diversifying their supply chains outside of China, if not onshoring, then nearshoring, putting them in countries that are closer to home, that we have more influence over, like Mexico. Uh, you know, we're going to keep having these problems. It's very interesting. The head of the World Health Organization, at the very start of COVID, um, Tedros, who is in the back pocket of China. They bought and paid for his whole career, basically, coming out of Ethiopia um, when he was a politician there. Um, he flew to China in January of 2020 and was basically, everybody assumed, and this was all the talk in the media, that he was going to force Xi to come out and publicly declare there is a pandemic and we need world health assistance to basically fight the pandemic and stop the spread. Well, when he flew to Beijing, he had a four-hour screaming match, basically, with Xi. That's the rumor. And afterward, he came out and said, 
uh, while we're concerned about COVID, we believe China is managing it better than anybody. And the reason I think he said that was not only because China had bought and paid for him politically, but I think it's because Xi probably said at some point in that screaming match, listen, if you go out and you humiliate me and you say this thing is a pandemic on my own territory, I'm going to cut off the world access to our antibiotic production. And we're going to screw everything up for you guys. And I think that's what happened. I think that's why Tedros held off declaring it a pandemic earlier. Well, about 90, <clears throat> 95% of our antibiotics are produced yeah. in China. Right. Almost nobody knows that. Right. Well, I knew that. But yes. Well. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a nerd like that, though. So. Well, that's the reason you're here. We're, we're here. We're my here my readers know it. that. My readers know that, Your too. Your readers I've know been, that. I've well, been well, I'm beginning to know it. But so <laughs> it, it's, it's uh, I, you know, just as of somebody that's, run a company and been on this it's to uncouple now just would require a massive amount of will to it believe would. we've got to do that it's the same and thing with investing in space people push back i mean it's so expensive i say yes up front it's an upfront expense but the back end you're going to be getting more money off of that because in the terms of space the development of space resources in situ would would allow for it's a minimum of a trillion dollar economy it's the same thing with decoupling from china yes it's costly up front but ultimately, in the long term, you're rehabilitating American manufacturing. You're creating a whole new set of opportunities for American workers that don't exist right now. In the long run, you're creating opportunity and ultimately greater growth potential. But it has to be long term. And it, as you know, most, most of our corporations and, and corporate people, they're trained in that agency theory of business management, which is, you know, bottom line, short term uh, you know, quarterly report thinking, uh, same thing our politicians, it's every two and four year election cycles. We are a short term people in a long term world. And that is a big problem for us because the Chinese is the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. They are long term thinkers. They don't care. They don't have to answer to shareholders and, and you know, voters. Yeah. I want to turn to Iran. Yeah, let's do that. Let's go to all. Let's do all the horrible. We've the done horrible. Russia. Yeah. We've done China. Yeah, you can do North Korea well, too if you want. I, I want to do scarce water as well, but I don't know. <laughs> Quickly, let's take one minute here. You're saying the world is also everybody's about to run out of water. At well, some point? the potable water is about to become a rare commodity in the next ten years, I think. Why? Just because of how we've been draining potable water sources and how we irrigate and how we, we, we do not use water wisely. We take it for granted. I live in Florida. The aquifers in Florida are being drained. And once they are gone, how do we replace them? It takes tens of thousands of years to get those aquifers replaced. And this is in the United States. When I lived in Chicago, I went to school in Chicago. I remember the news was talking about this all the time, local news. Um, the five West Coast states led by California were begging to build a water pipeline out to the West Coast to drain some of that water from Lake Michigan because they, they didn't have access to enough yeah. water. The Canadians stepped in and said, well, we're a treaty member. We draw from that water source. You're not diverting that water supply for states far removed from, from the, the Great Lakes. No way. And so they, they, they stopped it from happening. Had they done that, we would be living in a very different world right now. The West Coast states wouldn't be having these drought problems, but at the same time, we'd be dealing with all new problems from losing that water supply or part of it uh, unintended uh, from the Great Lakes. So you see in America, you have these, these issues with, with drought and with declining water supply. In Eurasia, Europe and Asia, as well as Africa and the Middle East, you have this 
shaping out to be water wars possibly erupting. This seems like an investment opportunity. Well, yeah. Yeah. Seems like we, we desalination, hauling yeah. icebergs from Antarctica, you know. Is so that this kind was something in 2017, about? a gentleman from California who's very similar to you in terms of his background, <laughs> flew me out to talk to some yeah. young upstart yeah. Yeah, coming out of Berkeley. Um, now, he didn't like me because of my politics, but um, uh, he, this guy was trying to... You're in a, you're in a safe space. Right? Yeah, yes, yes. Good to know. <laughs> but this guy was trying to get California to invest in his desalination, desalinization technology, and he couldn't get anyone to do it. Um, at the time, they were saying it's too expensive to do this. And again, this is one of those things where now we're looking at this, so we should be looking at this medium and long term, saying there's going to be a run on water, clean, potable water. And there's that we had better start, and we have this technological innovation capability here still. Um, we're not using it to our full effect. We should be getting investors lined up to invest in developing these technologies. Now they say it's too costly to do, requires too much energy right now because it's in its rudimentary stage. But the more you develop something, the cheaper it becomes, the more efficient it becomes. So we're focused on absolutely the wrong environmental issue. Oh yeah. There is an environmental issue, but it's Water. not it's not one degree centigrade uh, temperature. It's uh, well, that's very easily fixed too. By the way, that this whole thing, you know, about emissions, um, the I, the the Alexandria Casio Cortez, her big thing was the Green New Deal, and when you when you listen she, to her, when, when you listen to her and her well, her backers is the thing. When you listen to her backers, um, their whole thing is they want to curb human emissions. Well, you can't do that without curbing modern society. And who wants to lose modern society? AOC would be the worst impacted by that. She's driving around in a Tesla, for God's sakes. So the, 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 the solution is to create alternative forms of energy, like nuclear, which she won't support, fission and fusion, research and development at least. The solution is to invest in hydropower. The solution is yeah. to invest in geothermal power. The solution is to invest in carbon capture. She would not support, I remember this when I worked on Capitol Hill, her group would not support carbon capture, which is, we can do it now. It's a great technology. We should be investing in these things. Um, there's, a, there's a girl in Oregon who developed a bacteria that eats pollution. These are things that we should be throwing a lot of taxpayer dollars at, and we don't. What do we do? We spend it on solar panels that China can easily mass produce for far cheaper and destroy our investment in. So even when it comes to the emissions issue, there are solutions in the free market, in the private sector, that aren't being done because the, the, the political people don't want to support nuclear or desalinization or whatever. And these are the things we should be talking about. They talk seem to be longing for that good old 14th century. They really, well, the, for us, not for them. Not for them, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, let's, do, let's get to Iran. Yeah. That'd be, we get in the last segment here because it's... it's, it, it's it's gone underreported right now re because of all the other things going right. on in the world. What's happening with Iran? So this is the, the basis, as you know, of my next book, which is coming out October of this year, October 18th. It's available for pre-order now. Um, How can we pre-order? Any Amazon? online, any online, okay. uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, uh, and it's we'll have the it. That's called The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. Mm -hmm. And this was born out of my first book, Winning Space. If you remember, I had a chapter on Iran's space capability and how it's closely related to their ballistic missile and nuclear weapons program. Well, our friend Al Regnery, who's my publisher, I said, you know, Al, I want to do a second book. I've got reams of research that I couldn't use for one chapter in the first book. I want to do a whole book about Iran. 
And so he said, go for it. And I did. Um, and basically how I'm looking at Iran is it is the stalking horse of crises, of geopolitical crises. We keep saying we're done with the Middle East, like Al Pacino in Godfather 3. <laughs> just, when they, just when I think we're out, they keep pulling me back in. Yeah. Um, the, the solution that, well, it's a non-solution, that President Biden and the Democrats have been clinging on to since Jimmy Carter is give the Islamists of Iran legitimacy. Give them access to the world trading system. Make them a normal country. Didn't we and, try that with China? Exactly. Exactly. That's the idea. Replicate the success in China with Iran. Let them have nukes. Who cares? Treat them. Don't treat them like a pariah and they won't act like a pariah. This is very childish thinking. Um, and so they don't take into account the fact that there are other people in the region who view an Iranian bomb as a nightmare, particularly that regime. You have the Saudis the leading the Sunni Arab world. Remember, Iran is a predominantly ethnic Persian Shiite Muslim religious country in a predominantly ethnic Arab Sunni Muslim Middle East. So automatically you have this deep historical religious and ethnic resentment. Saudi Arabia and the Sunni Arabs do not have nuclear weapons. We're going to let Iran get nukes. And we think that the Saudis are not going to try to get nukes on their own. This is insane. Then the Israelis are, are there as well. You have, you know, it's predominantly Jewish, democracy, pro-Western, friendly to America, Te technology technological hub. super hub yeah. uh, in, uh, in Israel. Uh, great country, wonderful people. Um, we've supported them for decades. They are hated by the Iranian regime, hated. Um, and they have the bomb in Israel. So the Obama administration and now his former vice president, now our current president, sadly, uh, Mr. Biden has carried this idea as well, which is basically, well, Israel has the bomb and it's not fair that they have the bomb only because it's highly destabilizing. Therefore, if you let their great rivals in Iran have it, it'll create a stabilizing force and it'll force those two to constantly be balancing and competing against one, each one another. And like the Cold War with the Soviet Union in the United States, it'll create a stable Middle East far more so than we ever could create on our own. They don't realize there's a third party, first of all, which is the Saudis. And they're not going to take kindly to either their Israeli neighbors or their Iranian neighbors having nukes and them not having nukes. So there's that there's a, a chance for a very real destabilizing nuclear weapons race in the Middle East, which is the last place you want to have a nuclear weapons race. Um, the Saudi regime is very weak. And if it were to be overthrown after they get nukes, uh, the ones that would replace them would be another Islamist group, an al-Qaeda type. Does the treaty slow, stop, help, hinder the uh, Iraq or the Iran uh, You're talking quest? about the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the nuclear deal that Obama did? That, yes. Yeah. So um, the Obama <laughs> people, now the Biden people, will tell you that this actually hindered their ability to get nuclear weapons and that when President Trump in 2018 pulled us out of that deal, it sped up Iran's nuclear weapons development. Well, that's completely false. What we know, what they won't tell you, is that Iran never stopped developing and stockpiling the bomb. In fact, technically speaking, I would argue they already have the bomb. It's a question of how many and how reliable it is. And can they, do they have a delivery system that's reliable? And so what Trump did, which was brilliant, by the way, uh, what Trump did, since we're in a safe space here, I can say that, um, what Trump did was he 
imposed harsh economic sanctions, which drained Iranian reserves and cut off their supply of, of energy. They can't sell their energy to much of the rest of the world, which really hamstrung their economy at a time when the people of Iran were tired of the regime and they started protesting. And then he coupled that with the Jared Kushner, Mike Pompeo approach of the Abraham Accords, which was to bring Israel and the Sunni Arab states closer together than they ever have been. And that would form a natural regional blockade to Iran's growing power, Iran, which is being buttressed and supported by China and Russia. And that one-two punch of sanctioning Iran's economy, preventing any shipment of any material that could be used to help grow their nuclear weapons uh, capability, coupled with the Abraham Accord, what that did was it allowed for us to take a step back from the region without losing the region, empower our natural allies, Israel and the Sunni Arabs, and also strangulate both the Iranian economy, which threatened the Iranian regime, stability at home, and then also slow down any, any ability for Europe or other countries to give nuclear assistance to Iran. And what the treaty does now, what the Obama-era nuke deal does, is it removes the sanctions, it allows Iran to get all of these hundreds of millions of dollars through trade and giveaways that we're giving to them in the form of IOUs from the Shah, days. Uh, and then also it allows Iran to be integrated into the world trading system, just as we did with China in the 70s. And we all know how that turned out. And with Iran's massive supply of fossil fuels, you think it's bad what happened with Russia, how we gave them all that, that capability to do trade with Europe uh, for energy, which then allowed them to invade Ukraine. The same thing's going to happen to Iran. The same thing. If we, if we integrate them into the world system, if we make them a normal country, led by mad mullahs, um, you're talking about expediting regional and possibly nuclear world war in the Middle East, not negating it. It's the exact opposite of what they say. We've got to wrap it up for okay. today, but I made, I made a point at the beginning of the show with Brandon Weikert that he's been called a brilliant and anxiety-inducing scholar. Um, he tells us what we do not want to hear <laughs> but need to know and I think we absolutely proved that today. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to get together again. I want to come up with some lines of action. You know, if, if, when when we get a real president and a real administration, what kind of things we can do? If and we have the book, will have solutions. The book will have the solutions. The books are not just anxiety inducing. It's not just fear scenarios. It's Okay. Also solutions. And you also have solutions in winning space. Absolutely. So they're both filled with solutions. Yes, and my third book hopefully will also. Okay. Be, you know. All right, great. Uh, anyway, this has been the Bill Walton Show, and you can find Brand Weikert at uh, weikertreport.com, uh, mm -hmm. and it's a very, very comprehensive uh, view of national security and all sorts of interesting things. We've I also publish at today. the Washington Times, Asia Times, and American Greatness as well. Right. Yeah. And Bill Walton Show, you can find BillWalton.com on YouTube, Rumble, all the major podcast platform, Apple, Spotify, etc. And uh, hope you enjoyed this and we'll come back to listen in for some more. So anyway, thanks for this and uh, thanks for you. Is there anything we should have talked about but didn't? Well, if you want to talk about North Korea, that was the only one we didn't hit. Um, but yeah, you know, basically Trump was right on North Korea. You know, and Biden is wrong, and because Biden is wrong, we are po we're 
possibly risking a conflict with North Korea because Biden won't talk to Kim Jong-un. Yeah, what's he doing to be provocative? What's happening? Well, Kim Jong-un is now popping off nuclear missile tests like they're firecrackers on the 4th of July. Yeah. Whereas Trump famously got him to stop. Now, he didn't get Kim to stop developing nukes, but he got Kim to stop being provocative. That was key. And he doesn't get credit for that. And had he gotten a second term, I really believe Iran would have renegotiated in good faith because they were, they were going to get slammed. And I think North Korea, I think there would have been a, a, new, a new relationship with North Korea that would have been wonderful for us and very bad for China. But now China has got their claws again in Kim, and he is risking war. And it would be a highly destructive war. It's the last thing our global economy needs. Who would he, who would he shoot fire a missile at? Well, probably, well, missiles could be either Japan or South Korea and or South Korea. Okay. Um, invasion, though, if he were to really go far. South Korea? Would be, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've, uh, I don't follow that. But, but yeah, South Korea is almost strategically as important as Taiwan. It can be. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would say... South Korea has a problem, and some of their political establishment is far friendlier to China than I like. Okay. But the current new president is very good in South Korea. The previous president was not pro-American. It was very dangerous. Now, yeah, it's... Honestly, it is really too bad we couldn't mature the Trump-Kim relationship and move it along because it would have been really interesting to see if we could at least neutralize Kim as an overt enemy of America and maybe flip him into a cudgel to use against China the way China uses him against us. Well, it seemed like he liked Trump. He did. Well, because he liked celebrity. Okay. Kim was a voracious consumer not only of food, but of, of celebrity, American pop culture. Remember, he was very close with um, uh, Dennis Rodman. He was a big basketball <laughs> fan. <laughs> You know what, though? That was brilliant. Yeah. That was brilliant. And I never knew why we weren't using that to greater effect. Yeah. American celebrity, it's a pain in the neck when you're dealing with it in terms of liberals at home. But it can be used for very good you know, purposes, soft power-wise, if we use it smartly. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone, and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.